Hey there, Talking Shop fans. It's your host, Brian Gray, and I have a couple of quick words before I get to my interview with Kevin Allison. I just wanted to let you know that this is our first studio recording. We had everything lined up to talk to Kevin while he was in town recording a Risk Live episode in Pittsburgh, his first of what will hopefully be many. And there was a complication with his flight, and he ended up coming just in the nick of time, or perhaps a couple nicks past time, to get to his live show, which was hours after we were going to record the podcast. So he graciously offered to talk to me on Skype this week, and I had a great conversation with him. And in fact, got to hang out with him while he was in town, although it was just for really a few hours. We went out after the Risk Live show, and uh, so this was myself, Kevin, a few of the storytellers, and just a couple of the people from the audience who came to see the show. I joked and said that this is the first time I've gossiped so much going out with a group of total strangers. And I think that gets to the point that Kevin really is interested in people's stories. And I love that about him. I'm the same way. So without further ado, let me get to the show recorded in quote unquote studio. Welcome to Talking Shop, the podcast where I dive into my guests' relationship with their work to learn why they love to do what they do. Via Skype today for our first remote interview is actor, writer, and storyteller Kevin Allison. Uh, Kevin's rise to fame came with the beloved MTV sketch series, The State. He is now the creator and host of Risk, an edgy storytelling podcast and live show. I've been an avid risk listener for years, hooked by this well-produced episodic podcast of people truly opening up on stage. But somehow I had not caught up with the state until I was preparing for this show. Then I watched all four seasons in one night. I was absolutely delighted by the absurdity of this show and the sense that no time is wasted. I'm super excited to chat with Kevin about sketch, storytelling, and everything in between. Ladies and gentlemen of podcast land, Kevin Allison. Kevin, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. Yeah, uh, despite all of the uh, adventure we had in getting you here. (laughs) Yeah, well, I had a a delightful time when I was there in Pittsburgh. Yeah, what was your impression of uh, Pittsburgh? It was really interesting. I mean, I didn't get much time to see the city, uh, but we had a really, really strong turnout for the storytelling show. And then uh, the Steel City Improv, I was very impressed by those guys. They've yeah. got some wonderful stuff going on there. So, yeah, it it seems like it's a, a vibrant, creative community. Now, I have been involved in uh, comedy in Pittsburgh for a long time, but I'm really just starting to skirt at the edges of the storytelling community. But I'm also just always so impressed by how large it is and and kind of growing as well. Like I, I've, I've been to only one moth event, but there's, I just hear all these events popping up. Um, True story party uh, is one I know of, but there, there's such a, a vibrant storytelling community. So I'm glad that you got to tap into some of that while you were here. Yeah, it's really interesting as far as storytelling goes. Definitely the moth is kind of the granddaddy that brought the storytelling show into the consciousness of people in the, you know, late 90s here in New York. And then since then New York City has become almost like Greenwich Village in the uh in the 60s was with folk music where it really is an art form where uh, you know, the ordinary Joe can end up doing quite well at it. You know what I mean? I mean, you don't need to be uh, seriously trained for years and years in Shakespearean acting or this, that, or the other. You know, we understand when someone is uh, maybe not all that trained in writing or acting, uh, but if they are getting up on stage and, and and we get this vibe 
that they're being authentic and they've really thought through their life experience and they're sharing it in as revealing a way as they possibly can muster, the audience just completely eats it up. It's it's a very uh, – it's just – it's practicing being human together, really. Yeah, I, I love it. And I want to talk a lot more about storytelling. Um, but first, I want to talk a little bit about your story. Uh-huh. Like that segue. Um, so you, you joined the state – when you were in undergrad, um, which led to this fan favorite MTV sketch series, um, after which you you went through a, a what I've pieced together to be a sort of dark but ultimately defining period, and now have emerged at the helm of this this podcast. Um, if you look back on that career, what what are some of maybe the kind of proudest or most um, I guess defining moments of that kind of wide and and interesting career to date? Well, I think that when I was at NYU and I recognized that there was something uh, uncannily unique about this uh, chemistry that this group of people who became the state had together, I saw the very first show that the state did together. At that time at NYU, the group was called The New Group. And I just had this incredibly strong feeling in my gut that there was kind of an electricity to 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 what was happening in the room. And I just knew that if I was going to do anything while I was at NYU, I should try to become friends with those folks. And it's a shame that I lost, you know, it, what, what's really interesting as far as like the stories of our lives go is that we learn things and then we unlearn them. Like it, it, yeah. if, if I had continued throughout the rest of my career, you know, looking at people who seem to have a lot of fantastic chemistry and to make sure that come hell or high water, I become those people's friends or do stuff around them to impress them or learn from them, then I think I would have done really well after the state broke up, in the immediate years after the state broke up. But what happened was I did become, you know, I, I made a point, I'm going to become those guys' friend, and I did. And before I knew it, you know, after a couple of years of trying and trying and trying, writing sketches to get their attention, helping them out with the technical side of the shows, after a while they finally, in my junior year of college, said, okay, you can be a member of the troupe. <laughs> now, uh, so so then, you know, after college, the group was on television almost immediately. Uh, it, not, I mean almost immediately is relative. It was maybe a year after we graduated, but still that's, you know, immediate success as far as most young people are concerned. And, um, and we super, super what we did together when we were on MTV. Um, but I really looking back, if there was one great lesson I wish I had learned, it's that look, Okay, yes, that was a really tough group of people to be friends with. We were extremely rivalrous. You know, we had a lot of competition between us. There was a lot of roasting kind of humor between us. There was a lot of hurt feelings and tension along the way. So when the group did broke break up, it kind of shattered me because I felt like, boy... I got a lot of scars and bruises along the way by just, you know, emotionally and psychologically by being a member of that group. And then the group was no longer there for me. Um, so I, I, you know, just felt resentful and disillusioned and got very, very, very shy about other comedians while the rest of the, while the rest of the group after the group broke up was like, let's just start meeting as many comedians as we can be as friendly as we can to as many people be appearing on stage as often as we possibly can with as many other people. And that did them wonders, you know, to just be out there on a regular basis, meeting other comedians, establishing new friendships, opening their minds to different ways of doing things. Meanwhile, I was stuck with my stage fright 
my resentfulness, my fear, and was very, very reluctant to be getting up on stage in those several years after the state broke up. And I was really shooting myself in the foot. Do you, do you think that, that that competition and that kind of the, the way that the group interacted um, fed into the, the comedy itself? Oh, I think it absolutely did. I think it, I, I, I think that it was just as much and maybe even more of a positive for us than it was a negative. I think that that group of people was more consistently 24-7 dedicated, uh, showed more initiative, and was more consistently passionate about every aspect of the art that we were making that uh, I've never known a group of people that worked so hard before since. And and so, yes, I, I think that that sense of, holy, holy shit, I've got to write my ass off in order to compete against everyone else in this super hardworking group made what the group was doing extraordinary. So, yes, I do think, you know, the, the negative side was that after a while, everyone got a little bit burned out and worn out as far psychologically, you know, we, we, you know, the members of the group that, that had the best facility for writing quickly and, you know, uh, got less and less shy about showing up in front of crowds in this context or in that context, those guys started to get a little bit tired of having to get the rest of the group's votes for everything. And they also maybe got a little bit too big for their britches and failed to recognize that, hey, look, it really is still all about how the chemistry of these 11 people together is unlike anything else. It's, It's irreplaceable. So if you do out of the desire to be in front of the camera more, go off and try to do something without you know, most of the rest of us, you know, good luck and everything, but you're throwing away something very valuable that we should try to make last as long as we possibly can. I actually want to ask you more about that. So I know that fundamental to the group was this idea that there was no central leadership. Um, in the in the first episode, Michael Ian Black identified himself as an on-air personality, mm-hmm. which later in the DVD commentary um, was there was this conversation about how they didn't want to use people's names because it took away from that sense that, you know, we're, I don't want to be a celebrity. Like, let's just call him an on-air personality because it's kind of one for all and all for one. Uh, So, so maybe you could talk a little bit about that, that philosophy and and generally, I guess, just that how, how that came about or, or how that affected the, um, the, the work itself or the the tone of the group? Well, we knew from the very beginning that uh, MTV was going to try to pull us apart and that other networks were going to try to pull us apart. Before, when we were still on You Wrote It, You Watch It, which was the first show we worked on on MTV with Jon Stewart, um, Ken Marino, I think, was offered $50,000 by ABC to leave the group and just be on hold as a potential guy that they could audition for, uh, you know, they would have first refusal for anything he might audition for, for ABC sitcoms. Oh, wow. Um, and he turned it down. And at that point, at the age of whatever, uh, 23, uh, uh, to turn down that amount of money for that shot at fame, uh, that was quite a sacrifice on his part. But it really solidified for the rest of us, okay, come hell or high water, we're going to stick together as long as we can. So when we went to MTV and we started negotiating, there was this huge period of uh, probably, I think it was six months between making the pilot and actually being hired for series because MTV did not want us to own our name. We fought with them for months and months to even be able to own our name because they knew very well that they wanted to take the name of the state, own it, fire half of us, and then (laughs) make us the Mickey Mouse Club that that MTV just fills in whatever kid they think looks sexiest, you know, the way that uh, 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 Saturday Night Live often works. Um, So... We, we, we fought to keep our name. We, do, we don't own any of the content. 
We, we, yeah. we, you know, at a certain point, you know, it was like the way that Republicans negotiate. In the end, we were <laughs> we felt victorious just to own our goddamn name. And meanwhile, have never made a dime off of everything we did for them. Um, so, yeah. So so there I think he was kind of making fun of the way that MTV was so obsessed with our they MTV kind of wanted us to be commenting on their on-air personalities, their VJs and people like Dan Cortez and whatnot. Um, and they wanted some of us to start, you know, sticking out as the star of the show. So he wrote that almost, I think, as a, uh, a, a kind of an odd little commentary on the fact that he himself really wanted to become a star of the show, but at the same time, he wanted to make fun of his own, you know, desire, you know, what yeah. MTV wanted and what was best for the group. Um, so just a, a little bit more on the state, I guess. I, I wonder if we could talk a, a little bit about the, the writing process itself. I'm going to play a clip here of one of these sketches so that we can use it as just a launching off point. The Jew, the Italian, and the redhead gave we all live together on Avenue A. We have same adventures from day to day. The Jew, the Italian, and the redhead gave. <laughs> Come on, Ken. It's the end of the month. We need the money for the rent. Where's the money? I'm sorry, Dave. I spent it all on pasta. I'm going to make a big tomato sauce. Oh, I would help you with that, Ken, but I'm busy picking out these pretty curtain patterns for the apartment. Fine. I'm going to go get some bagels, I guess. Okay. Toodaloo, schnookum. All right, Dave. Arrivederci. <laughs> And the redhead gave We all live together on Avenue A We each see the world in our own way The Jew The Italian And the red Head Uh, I think it was the most fun for me to watch you watching or listening to that. Um, so I, I think I want to use that as an example. It's uh, obviously a very well-known uh, sketch, but maybe you can kind of let me know. So partly I was just interesting, you know, how did the writing work? What, you know, did someone come in with an idea and then you'd work that idea together? Did someone come in with like a whole sketch? Did you bounce ideas back and forth? Um, and maybe using that sketch as maybe an example, if you remember any about that, like, you know, where did that start and, and how did that end up as as what we saw there? Yeah, that's one of the few sketches where I remember really distinctly how it came to be written. You know, in the in the beginnings of the group when we were working together at NYU as a sketch comedy group on campus, um, there was more often than not the habit of walking away as individual writers and coming to the whole group with an already completely written script to pitch to the whole group. And we we really saw uh, writing as being like the kind of most important part of sketch comedy. We looked to Monty Python as being maybe our ultimate inspiration as far as sketch comedy went, and we thought that those guys placed a, a very, very high stock in the words, in the writing of it. If you look at some of the Python sketches, like, for example, Argument Clinic, it's yeah. the words are so brilliant that you don't want to get a single word wrong, you know? Um, so we kind of did things that way for years where it would be 
okay, we're going to have a writing meeting today. So we gather in a circle. Everyone brings two or three scripts that they pitch to the entire group. And everyone had so much ownership over their each script, over their own scripts, that they would kind of practice the actual uh, voices of each character in it rather than passing out the scripts and having other people do the, you know, because they were like, no, no, this character should sound like this, right? Yeah. Over the years, I think out of necessity and out of, uh, you know, just calming down and relaxing a little bit, we began to realize, oh, it's, it's just as useful to write sketches sometimes as twos or threes or sometimes even as a whole group. So mm-hmm. what started happening is that uh, Tom and Ben or uh, Ken and David or uh, uh, Carrie and Black and Showalter would, would you know, stay after work and, and uh, either go out to a bar to get some drinks and start brainstorming over a sketch or just find an empty room in the offices at MTV and work on something together. Italian and the Redhead Gay happened was that there there came a day at the office, 5 o'clock, everyone's going home, David, Ken, and I said, you know what? The three of us have never written something together. Let's force ourselves. Let's give ourselves, lock ourselves in a room of an empty office here at MTV and see what we come up with. And, uh, you know, about the first 20 minutes were wheel spinning. You know, it's very typical uh, to throw a lot of stuff up against the wall and to feel like, nah, 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 that's not really sticking. And it's very important. I'm always encouraging young writers not to let that psych you out too much. Not to let uh, the the disheartening fact that 90% of what you come up with you're not really going to want to use uh, make you feel like, oh, I'm not funny. Or, oh, my God, something's wrong with the chemistry of the three of us. Or, you know, to just... Stay open and to just keep trying because you never know. You know, it's like uh, it really is like, uh, oh, I don't know, uh, playing the lottery sometimes. So anyway, so the three of us sat there for about 20 minutes and nothing was coming out of us. And finally, someone, maybe it was Ken, said, well, is is it what is a sketch that only the three of us could do (laughs) together? And I said, uh the Jew, the Italian, and the redhead gay, and we started <laughs> laughing. And the the gist of the idea was, I mean, we didn't really analyze what we were doing, but I think what we all felt was, let's just take that bare bones concept and and just just have it be nothing more than that. And wouldn't that be a kind of a funny commentary on the fact that most sitcoms are that stereotypical. You know what right. I mean? Most sitcoms do just plug in cookie cutter <laughs> references to, oh, there's the, you know, just like a Jew, he wants his bagel. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> so we did that. And then, and then it's the group. It's totally the group that comes in in the end to say, hey, what if in the end the entire group comes out and it becomes for no reason whatsoever <laughs> a 1970s hippie rock musical like Hair or Godspell, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah, that part, like, doesn't make any sense whatsoever. <laughs> but we all had been in shows like Godspell in high school, so we were like, yeah, 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 of course it should end like that. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, you, you mentioned, too... Um... Python, did, did you guys watch Sketch together, or I'm, I'm like, or did you just have you'd all seen that stuff? Um, you know, we had to admit after a while that probably the shows which were most foundationally essential on us were Sesame Street, The Muppet Show, and to a slightly lesser extent, The Electric Company, mm-hmm. uh, because those were the shows that we. You know, when we were five years old, we were all watching. Uh, it was about the time when we were six or seven years old that we started to sneak, you know, be able to sneak downstairs at 11 o'clock to watch 
the original cast of SNL. So a lot of us were catching that. And some of the group had been turned on to Python by the time we were in, you know, junior high school or high school. And some of the group didn't know Python at all. Uh, some of the group was also aware of Kids in the Hall, which had been around for maybe a year or two, maybe even two years before the state and, and was already on Comedy Central. Some of the members of the group were aware of Kids in the Hall and some were just not. So, so Monty Python and Kids in the Hall were slight frames of references for the group, but Monty Python was a frame of reference for the group in a more like we would refer to them more often as an ideal. Uh, maybe it was the people who did more of the writing in the group kept referring back to them. We wanted to create a linked show like they did that would be linked in real time so that an audience coming into the studio would see a half hour show wherein the remote segments were piped in over televisions. And then when a remote segment was over, someone would, you know, enter a, a building and then be seen entering the stage in front of the live studio audience. Yeah. And, you, and we could perform it in real time in a half hour. MTV was very hesitant about that because they felt like, look, it'll be much easier to film a lot of stuff uh, that's, you know, some of it will work, some of it won't. And then, be able to say that worked, that didn't. So now we'll just link them up. And in fact, I think, you know, quite frankly, you know, at the time we were very resentful about that. But quite frankly, I do think that that's a better way to do things. You know, it's to this yeah. day, it's the way that I do things with risk. With risk, I record lots of stories. Uh, I have a lot of people get up on stage to tell stories. And most of it never sees the light of day. Uh, so I, I think that's a very, you know, it's smarter. But Mr. Show, what I, I, as far as I know, in America, is the only sketch comedy show that has done the Python method of having a, uh, you know, the thing where they would perform a show in a half hour in real time in front of an audience. Um, so they did end up being able to do that. And I think they did a remarkable job of it. And just like Python, that, that having to come up with an organic whole half hour, uh, I think makes things even weirder you know what i mean sometimes <laughs> yeah, maybe definitely. maybe too um uh in it, 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 maybe even more so for python than mr show but anyway yeah uh, so i think that that one of the ways that that the state might be a little different from both those shows because of the slightly different format is that uh, our sketches are more likely to have a very definitive beginning middle and end you know to have their own integrity um, you you mentioned briefly kids in the hall and um, you you talk both in your risk live um, I've seen you do some stories about this as well as in previous interviews um, about knowing from a very early age uh, about your about being gay I mean you were out on the show um, you and uh, so I mentioned Kids in the Hall and that Scott Thompson was also um, an out gay sketch performer in the in the 90s when there were not a lot of other performers. Um, I, I want to I guess I'm interested just to know if you, you felt any responsibility to to write about that or if that was ever a conversation among the um, the state uh, in, in that it, it, it does come up in in a few of your sketches um, or if that was just kind of an unrelated part of your uh, your public persona. No, I did not. I never felt a responsibility to write about it uh, because I figured comedy is comedy and it's better that we always have the entire range of human experience to refer to. I, I, I'm always – when, when comedy uh, – you know, there are, there are rare cases where a kind of comedy is so – zeroed in on a particular context. And I think The Daily Show and Colbert Report are great examples of rare success at this, where they're so zeroed in on politics and the intellectual discourse of the country, uh, and they just 
have they just walk this amazing line of balance where they make it work. But usually I feel if comedy has a specific editorial bent like, oh, we're always going to be doing pop culture references or, oh, my gosh, this comedy is going to be about – Oh, it's going to appeal to this, you know, 18 to 22 year olds right now or whatever it is. I usually find that that is too limiting and it ends up uh, creating false comedy at certain points. And so I have huge admiration for some of the stand up comics of the 80s and 90s who came out as gay uh, and started you know, performing for mostly gay audiences. But I never wanted to do that myself because I wanted to be able to talk about anything. Um, and so, and it's not like I wanted to shy away from talking about being gay. Not at all. It's just that my way of being gay is very, very idiosyncratic and I don't feel like I – like a lot of things that people stereotype gay people for being interested in, I'm simply in no way interested in. <laughs> so as much as I like admire what Scott Thompson did, the balls it took and everything, I don't find most of those Buddy Cole sketches funny because it doesn't <laughs> speak to my kind of gayness at all. You know what I yeah. mean? And so I almost felt like there was a little bit of an aspect – and please, I mean, I would hate for him to hear me saying this because I really do <laughs> admire him. But there was almost an aspect of like minstrel show to it. Like, hey, here's all the words and phrases and concepts that are stereotypically applied to gay people and I'm going to make a, a stew out of it. You know what I mean? Um uh, so, so yeah, like, I guess I never wanted to be boxed in and it was finally, finally, when I started doing true storytelling that I realized, oh, here is a format that can go wherever it wants. I can be completely stereotypically faggy in one part of the story and then nothing at all like that later in the story because I'm a round character in a true story and I can reveal to you any part of my heart, mind, and soul. You know what I mean? And yeah. so that was why true storytelling ended up being such a relief to me. I mean, ostensibly, a person could do that with stand-up comedy, but they would really be swimming against the tide. They would really have to spend years trying to uh, prove their voice as, you know, accept me on my own terms. Eddie Izzard is someone who has certainly does done that, I think. You know what I mean? Like, just, you know, came in there, guns a-blazing, saying, yeah, I'm a, I'm a, a bit of a freak. Uh, <laughs> it'll take you a while to understand where the fuck I'm coming from, but here goes, you know? Um, I found that that's just easier to do within the context of just sticking to telling true stories. Uh, so let's, let's talk a bit more about true stories. Um, during the time after the state, you were performing some character monologues, um, and, and these solo shows. And you've talked about how, how Michael Black encouraged you to just speak as yourself to the audience. And, and it took you some time to, uh, get, comfortable with that uh looking back on that time have you come to terms with or, or maybe done some discovery on why why that was so hard for you and, and yeah. does that continue to be hard for you oh it does continue to be hard for me absolutely and i think that if it wasn't um then i wouldn't be doing my job right or or you know then i would have i'd be faking it but yes when the state used to have check-ins, um, uh, which the first half hour of our day at MTV, 10 o'clock in the morning, we'd gather with coffee and we'd spend about a half hour, everyone saying how they were really feeling. I think it was my idea. Uh, the idea being we poke and rib each other so much throughout the day. Why don't we have, <laughs> why don't we have a half hour each morning where it's like, no irony. Let's just be sincere about where we're coming from in our lives. Um, and the thing of it was, was that the rest of the group hung out with each other 24 seven. 
they were with each other the night before hanging out at a bar. Um, but I was the only gay one. So I was always off having my own little adventures in boy world, you know, uh, going to sex clubs and all sorts of strange things. And so I would always have the best stories at check-in and, uh, you know, black used to say to me, you should just get on stage and say this stuff. But my feeling was, was that I, and you know, it's, I've always you know, it's very interesting because they say that sometimes it's your fear of how others per- perceive you is going to create how others perceive you. You know what I mean? Like, like I was, yeah. I was always afraid that I was too idiosyncratic for Hollywood's taste that my, mixture of characteristics and traits does not fit well into a box of, okay, like, for example, when you see me as a Hollywood casting director, you might think, oh, okay, red hair, kind of ordinary looking, clearly has a sort of friendly, polite Midwestern thing about him. So let's make him just a totally nice guy, right? But then there's a part of me And all that might be true. But then there's a part of me that's also super kinky and raunchy. And then there's a part of me that has this really bizarre, absurdist sense of humor, et cetera, et cetera. Like all these things don't add up very neatly and cleanly. Um, So I didn't know how I was going to bring that on stage. I knew how to be bizarre and absurd in sketches. You know, you can see plenty of that from me on the stage. But I didn't know how to be all of me in anything. So when the state broke up and I started doing all these big, strange, bizarre, kooky characters on stage, somewhat like, you know, uh, um, what's his name? But like Andy Kaufman used to do, people like that. Mm-hmm. Um, the, these one-off things that I would do would be hits. You know, they would people would be like, you were the funniest thing up there tonight. But because I was always changing characters... And because I was so so shy about getting up on a regular basis, um, it would just be like every now and then you'd see Kevin Allison doing a new, really bizarre character, not enough for people to grasp onto. And when I did my final solo show of characters in 2008 uh, called F Up, it was five characters who had fucked up their careers. Um by that time I began to realize that I really was trying to talk about myself. Obviously it was trying to be autobiographical, but there was just too much getting in the way too much of the big, crazy cookie characters and the strange constructs around their stories. So I think the audience felt like he wants to speak to us, but he's having a little bit too hard of a time between all these clever stories he's telling of other characters. So that was the point at which I did that show F up in San Francisco. And afterwards there was black again, years later saying, I think the audience just wanted you to drop the act and speak as yourself. And I said, it just feels too risky. That's the word. If it feels risky, then you're probably revealing something pretty, pretty loaded. And if you are, they'll open up to you. Uh, so I started I, the very next week I went back to New York and told a risky story about, you know, the first time I tried prostitution before the uh, state was hired on MTV. And at the time I thought, oh, my God, this is such a risky story. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to seem so gay and yet so friendly and Midwestern and yet so absurd. <laughs> I was like afraid of all those things. And you know what? They did see all of those things in me when I told that story. But somehow because it was a true story and I was able to, you know, meld it all together, they accepted it all. And so I was like, okay, I think I finally found my format here to start doing this stuff. Now you ask, you know, is it a challenge to this day to tell true stories? It, 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 It seems as if it's gotten more challenging because now I am reputed as the guy 
who tells true stories. So I'll, <laughs> I'll get into circumstances with people that are spectacular and intimate and wild, and they'll be like, you are not going to talk about this on stage. <laughs> or I'll myself get into circumstances where I'm like, gosh, now I'm a storytelling teacher with my own school, and we've got big corporate accounts that are interested. Can I admit to having done this thing, which I know would turn a lot of people's stomachs? It's so kinky, you know? So, yeah. so it, it, to be quite honest with you, it's been a while since I've told a new story on risk that I felt like I was really out on a limb, you know? Um, uh, I don't know how, how long exactly. I mean, maybe eight months or so since I've come up with a new story where I felt like, all right, I'm really out on a limb here because I do so much, you know, the further along you get, the more second guessing you have to do, which is, which is the shame of it all. I mean, that's what risk is trying to fly in the face of. I, I want to just, just to give people a sense in case people listening haven't heard the podcast, I'm, I was going to play one more clip, which is a story that you told on the podcast. And it, it's actually from one of the kink camp stories. So you, you mentioned some of that, but it's a short clip. And then we'll talk a little bit more about storytelling. And then myself and Jefferson and April and Mary, we all wanted to go to um, what this, this event called Experiment. I think it was pretty brilliant of the camp to have this particular event on this first night. Basically what it was is they had this giant barn that they called the dungeon. And in the barn were just dozens of little stations, little nooks where certain, you know, certain kinds of tables you can lay on or poles you can attach yourself to, all that sort of thing. But at each station, there was a sign, almost like kissing booths, a sign where here you can try being spanked. Here you can try being erotically bitten, which was what uh, Jefferson's Jefferson was gonna be do was gonna be running one of these booths. You know, there was a guy who would like blow fire over you, and there was a guy who would flog you. Uh, all right, so that was the clip. Uh, so I wanted to again kind of talk a little bit about the the process that you use to write these stories and to to work with others on the stories. So maybe you could share a little bit for for that story or or others that you've written. You know, kind of how you choose your subjects. You've talked about that a little bit, um, how you work to shape the narrative, where to start, where to close them, uh, a little bit more about the storytelling itself, at least for your own personal process. Yeah, what I normally do when I have zeroed in, I mean, you know, I, I, I usually think in terms of times that I was particularly invested in something uh, where I had a lot of hope or a lot of fear or a lot of obsession around something and try to zero in on a handful, maybe just two or three, especially uh, dramatic incidents that happened around that thing. Uh, and then what I'll do is I'll record, I'll make a recording of myself just improvising the thing once just to get it out of my mouth from beginning to end uh, without too much thinking about it. And uh, then I might, you know, realize, okay, this is way too long. Maybe I, maybe I can record it again in a stop and start sort of way where I am a little bit more, you know, making specific editorial choices about all that I'm getting down. And then I might tra start transcribing the bits so I can really start to see it to come together as a script. Now that one, that particular story, um, uh, Kevin Goes to Kink Camp, that really was one where I did not write down. I really was, you know, trying to be as conversational as possible uh, because that had, that had very recently happened to me. I think I, I started recording that story just like uh, a couple weeks after having gone to the camp. Um, so uh, uh, that is a little bit more of the stop and start recording and not so much of the scripting out of things. 
you know, that happened to be one of those things where it just came together beautifully because I went to this camp and it was just bound to be an episodic sort of Fellini-esque smorgasbord of crazy sights and sounds from the beginning into the end. Yeah. But But it also came together fantastically because I ended up having this goal, which was really simply to have an orgasm. Uh, because at, at that time, there were very few gay men who went to that particular camp. Um, and so I, and I, I was terrified about saying hello to potential straight men. You know, I, I had never been in an, in a sexual atmosphere before where it wasn't just all guys who knew they liked guys, you know? So, uh, to be, uh, uh in the mix really freaked me out. And then lo and behold, um, in the 11th hour, someone approached me and wanted to play. Uh, and, and so I had my very first experience with a woman. And right when Let's Play, I was like, oh, my God, I've got the ending to my story. You know, and it, <laughs> it was so funny because I was I was, you know, part of you is in the moment and part of you is like, oh, my God, this is, you know, you feel like you're the um, whatever the the. Uh, uh, what do they call that kind of journalist who who is out there I- experiencing it? Um, yeah, like a, um, a Gonzo. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Right, right, right. Um, so, so you also, uh, I, I guess, aside from the boundary pushing content, I think risk is unique in that you you work on stories with your contributors. Um, maybe you can talk a little bit about how that process works and and how you go through that with people who who pitch and contribute to the the show right what happens is um when especially when risk comes to a new town or to any town um i will put a call out on the podcast itself hey we're looking for people with extraordinary stories from you know of any you know emotional type it could be horrifying it could be tear jerking it could be hilarious uh just as long as it's super honest and revealing and uh we'll get a lot of pitches we'll get a lot of people writing in a couple of paragraphs about what their story's about and if i see that the stakes seem high and the person seems to really care about what they're talking about and i'm interested because maybe it's a little bit different from what we've run before uh, then I will write to that person and say, okay, great. Could you send me a recording, about a 10-minute recording, of yourself just improvising this story, just trying to get through it once, getting as many of the details in there as you can, and then having listened to that, if I decide I'm going to put them in the show, if I was, I, I'm like, okay, this is different enough from the other stories in the show, et cetera, et cetera, then I'll start giving them very extensive notes about, okay, mm. I would really love to know more about why you felt that way about your father. And are you sure that that's really what you meant to do in that moment? And is there anything you're not revealing to us about your uh, hopes and fears around this particular relationship or whatever? So I start acting basically like a therapist, you know, Mm. Uh, kind of poking at a person and prodding to get them to dig deeper and to flesh out some of the dramatic scenes to, you know, not skimp on, uh, the look in someone's eyes or the way your, your toes started twitching or the weird sound that started to come from the other room, you know, like to include a lot of those cinematic details. And, and so that's how it works. You know, we go through, uh, at, at least one round of notes, but, but oftentimes two. And then the person's ready to go. So it's a very uh, it's a very therapeutic and cathartic experience for the people who tell the stories and the listeners as well. I I agree. And just to uh, wrap up, pulling back to where we started, you, you mentioned at the very top that uh, the that anyone can do this. That there's a lot of kind of I guess ordinary people versus actors and comedians and and so forth. And I think. You, you've had both on your show um, there, you know, there's Janine Garofalo and then there's, um, you know, someone who works as a teller at a bank and they both have these, these really powerful stories to share. And, and I guess that's been my experience listening to it as well as that um, 
is that it's it's fascinating to hear just how uh, how powerful it's like different to me, differently powerful. Those two kinds of stories can be. It's like, oh my god, this is a person I know versus this is you know just an everyday person. But uh, they're both really fascinating and and I think um is it is it when you first started it was mostly comedians right that you had on the show or was it always been it, no you are correct I mean I always envisioned that it would be everybody but we knew that we had to attract as many well-known people as possible in the beginning in order to get people paying attention to what we were doing so yeah. in the beginning of the show I focused most of my energy on trying to get the most famous friends I knew, you know, from back in the day to do the show. And it, actually, we still feel the need to do that. We still feel the need to get famous people on the show, to get attention to it on iTunes and stuff like that. But I think once people, once listeners discover the show, they begin to realize that it's more about humanity in general than it is about, oh, well, my gosh, they've got, you know, Lisa Lampanelli on this week, you know, yeah. 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 Uh, well, it's fantastic. Um, I'll, I'll wrap it up there. We're we're just about out of time, and it was uh, was a good point to wrap up. Uh, do you have before we go? This will probably be about a week or change. Um, uh, anything generally you want to plug? I guess there's risk, certainly. Um, yeah, yeah. You can always find us at risk dash show.com and there's a tour page there so you can always find out where we're going next um yeah i guess our we're, we're going to by the time this is up we'll already have been in boston and then i guess dc is next this year i'm actually going to do risk live from kink camp in, oh no way yeah in june yeah um so yeah so there's risk dash show.com but there's also the story studio at thestorystudio.org, I teach storytelling, and a lot of it I do online over Skype, just like this, where I'll sit down one-on-one -on -one with a person, they'll tell me a story, and I'll, I'll coach them to uh, oomph it up, help them prepare to do the moth or, or whatever. They, you know, they, they might simply want to work on a best man speech at a wedding or maybe just, just like, f for the hell of it, start working yeah. on a story. Yeah. As you know, I was hoping to do one of those in this episode, but there was just so much I wanted to talk to you about. So next time I have you on, hopefully I can tell a story and you can do some uh, five-minute version of that, and I think that'd be fun. Oh, yeah, that would be. Well, thank you so much again, Kevin. It was, it was great to talk to you and look forward to having you back in Pittsburgh for another Risk Live show. Yes, thanks so much. Yeah, and the Risk Pittsburgh show will be up very soon as well, The that our version live from Pittsburgh. Oh, excellent. Okay. Well, I will um, let you get back to your day and thank you again for being on the show. Great. Thank you. If you loved this episode, tune back in next month. Our podcast was recorded this month in studio, but is normally recorded in front of a live audience at the Arcade Comedy Theater in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Special thanks to Zach Simons for tech and production support, Michelle Horsley for our opening theme, and of course, Kevin Allison. For this and past episodes, surf to brianmgray.com slash podcast. And please, please, if you like the show, leave me a review on iTunes. We'll see you guys next time.